You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and with me yet again, hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Hostess? Hostess. I'll go with whatever you... H-O-S-T-E-S-T. Hostess. Makes sense to me. Yeah, you're the hostess with the mostest. Sure. That's what I've dubbed you, because you didn't want to be called my sometimes co-host. I wanted to be the co-hostess with the mostest. Well, you're the co-hostess with the mostest. Or maybe you're the co-hostess with the co-mostest. Labels, labels, labels. All right, all right. Okay. I'm happy with any of them. Well, this week we have a jam-packed show because not only do you and I have things to talk about, um, but we also later in the show are going to be bringing in Chris Carta from the Trial Lawyers Advocacy Group to talk about more things related to ICBC's ridiculous no-fault system that's coming in and how it's going to impact people. So a lot to unpack in this episode. Now, Paul, should we jump into it? Kyla, let's jump into it. Okay. First of all, I wanted to talk about something um, that's tangentially related to driving law, um, which is this horrific case coming out of Alberta involving a man who was locked in a jail cell for hours on end. Um, Police had arrested him for being intoxicated in a public place, but turns out dude was having a stroke. 18 hours and 18 minutes. That's a long time. He had banged on the door asking for water. Um, the police claimed that they went in and checked on him, but apparently in the 18-hour video, uh, there's no indication that they went in and checked on him. He was arrested for, he drove to a bar, um, went in to meet a friend who was the owner of the bar. Um, He was taken as being intoxicated when he had ordered a water. Ultimately, he was arrested. This was in Airdrie, Alberta. Taken to jail by the RCMP, thrown in a cell, kept there for 18 hours and 18 minutes, probably having a stroke before he walked into the bar, uh, and basically on a jail cell floor. Yeah, and with strokes. Concrete floor. Like it's so important that you get help fast. He's got, That's why the acronym. He's got permanent damage. Yeah. Um, and he's suing, and I think they, they were seeking $6 million, which seems like a bargain, frankly. For the way he was treated, um, yep. and um, and and for the deterrent aspect of it, because we, I mean, regularly see people who are in medical distress who are roughly treated by the police. Yeah, this happens a lot, um, and I think a lot more than than we really know. Where people, you know, like if you're having a stroke and you're driving. You cause an accident and then the police find you and you're slurring your words and your face isn't moving normally and your balance is off. All of that's consistent with stroke symptoms, but you may never get the medical attention you need and you may always chalk up the after effects of the stroke to the after effects of the collision. The symptoms are the same. 
largely the same. And the police are trained to, you know, assume that everyone is impaired. Like, how often do you and I read in police reports that somebody had droopy eyes? If your facial muscles are drooping, that's a symptom of a stroke. But droopy eyes, the police are like, oh, he's been drinking, he's got droopy eyes. You know what doesn't happen unless you've consumed extreme quantities of alcohol? The small muscles of your face losing their ability to, like, stay up. If you get to the point where you have droopy eyes, you can't stand up as a res- if it's a result of alcohol. Um, my concern here is the, um, I mean, in this case, this fellow asked to provide a breath sample. He asked to blow into a breathalyzer. He Prove said, he was you know, sober. Uh, but I, I would be surprised if him in this circumstance suffering a stroke would have been capable of providing a breath sample. So had he been a driver and had they felt that they had a driver on their hands, one would suspect he probably would have ended up charged with refusal. Yeah, and they would have said he wasn't forming a proper seal on the mouthpiece because he was having a fucking stroke and he couldn't seal his lips around the mouthpiece. How often do you see that in a police report? Uh, I mean, we study this, right? You and I study this. So we're telling you this in the podcast for the world to know that this does happen. This is not that unusual of a circumstance the unusual thing here is 18 hours and 18 minutes in a jail cell in calgary where it becomes a a news story in a lawsuit yeah but it's not that unusual for our clients to be found in this circumstance and we don't know if they had a stroke they don't necessarily know if they had a stroke a lot of people i you know i have family members who have had these mini strokes Mm -hmm. many of them um and they could have just as easily been arrested for impaired driving and refusal to provide a breath sample Yep. Um, in these circumstances where they were having a stroke. Yeah, I think good advice would be if you have a client that comes to you as a lawyer and they say, look, I did not drink enough to produce what the police are saying about me. There is no effing way that I was that drunk. And I don't know how the accident happened. I lost control of my vehicle. I can't explain it. I remember being super out of it afterwards. Go get your brain scanned. Get tested to see if you had a stroke. I don't know what they do to test for a stroke. Is it a blood test? Is it like a stroke hormone? I have known what they do, but I don't remember. Maybe I've had a stroke. And I'm not joking about strokes. I don't no, know. I'm 51 years old. Maybe I had a stroke. You're, you're also being currently investigated as to whether you've had a stroke. That is true. It is so, possible. Maybe you have, <laughs> have had a stroke. I have a doctor stroke. trying to figure out whether or not I had a stroke. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think of all of the cases that I've defended over the years that could have been explained yeah. fairly easily with a mild stroke, a stroke, um, and particular in, particularly in these refusal situations. But even if somebody's had a drink, I mean, you know, yeah, you've got an odor of liquor on your breath. Yeah, you're you're not behaving the way that the police would think is the Normal. way that, the way that they want you to behave. Yeah, you know, you're you're 65 years old, or you're 72 years old, or you're 49 years old. Well, never mind that. Like as Lance Platt always says, the police are expecting you to behave normal, but being pulled over by a police officer and asked to do things you never do otherwise is not normal. 
for anybody. And one of the things the police are trained to do is to ask you multiple questions and let you try and sort it out to see whether or not you can do that. Can I see your license and registration, sir? Where are you coming from tonight? Exactly. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. Just to ask it just like that. And then in the police report, it shows up. I asked him for his license and registration. He fumbled with the documents and took a long time to produce them. When I asked him where he was coming from, he paused an unusual amount of time before answering the question. Well, yeah, because you've asked him to do something, produce something, and answer a question all in one breath. And if I did that to the officer in cross-examination, the Crown would be all like, I object, that's more than one question at once. Yeah. And you never know if the officer's been drinking prior in to fact, going to court. that actually came up in a trial recently where I um, was dealing with an officer and the Crown's position was that this breathalyzer officer had asked my client, are you injured, ill, or on any medication before taking the sample? And it's a standard question that they ask. Free legal advice? Don't answer it. You don't have to. Don't answer it. Um, and the client said no. And the crowd's like, see, he said he wasn't injured, so you can't conclude that his behavior was as a result of injuries from a collision. And I said the same thing I just said on the podcast, that if I had asked that to the officer in cross-examination, there would have been an objection because it's three questions at once. We don't know what he's saying no to. Is he saying no to injured, ill, medication, all of the above, two of the three, which two? The don't very know. last one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a, a reliable answer, and it's a question that's deliberately designed. I realized as I was making that submission, I was like, this question is deliberately designed to trick people. It's a trick question. Well, it's also a question you can't really answer if you're injured. Yeah. You know, you, every time the ambulance crew always clears the guy. Are you injured? Are you injured? No, I'm fine. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I think I'm Okay. And you know, I'm released, and 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 you know, you know that if there was no impaired driving investigation, the ambulance crew would probably take that person to the hospital. And you know, because an ambulance crew came <laughs> later. We're bringing in Chris, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because in the civil context, Chris has told me that like when the ambulance crew comes to the accident scene, and a person is asked are you okay? Or even, you know, another witness or whatever. Somebody says, are you okay? Are you injured after an accident? In the civil context, the courts don't put much stock in somebody going, no, I'm fine. Because they accept that adrenaline can mask your injuries, that you might not realize the extent of your injuries while you're experiencing them, that it can take time for injuries to manifest. And in the civil context, where the burden of proof is on a balance of probabilities, not beyond a reasonable doubt, which the Crown has. You know, they have to prove that the, in, the, in the impairment civil was yeah. caused by alcohol or a drug yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt. But in the civil context, on a balance of probability standard, if you say, I'm fine, it's given no weight. And yet, if you say, I'm fine in the criminal context, it's always like, well, counsel, he did say he was fine. <laughs> well, yeah, Your Honor, that's because he was drunk and he couldn't feel the no, it's because no. he had a head injury. It's because, yeah, you, your injuries don't necessarily you manifest. You have a concussion. You've had your adrenaline pumping through your system. Yeah, you don't feel You're being it. asked a question that you want to answer positively to at the time because yeah. you just had an accident. You've got to have the bravado. And you're thinking to yourself, they have other more important things to deal with. And, of course, then it turns into the yeah, <laughs> impaired driving investigation. Yeah, it's embarrassing. You want it to end. Exactly. The impaired driving investigation instead. Yeah. 
No, it's 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 ridiculous. Anyway, so that's that's that. I've never thought just, of it. I've never thought of that contradictory aspect of the civil. It's case. totally contradictory. In the civil case, it's fine. Oh yeah, I know he said I he was get fine. The, I should get the, the cases from the civil context where the courts are like, you don't put stock in that answer, and I should use them in my criminal files moving forward. Yeah, don't put stock in the answer on a balance of probabilities, but on a beyond the reasonable doubt standard where you're going to convict the person and give them a criminal record. You give you it 100% credibility. You yeah, you said it was fine. fine. You must have been fine. Like I could be like spurting blood out of like an arterial bleed and he says he's fine and the judge would be like, no, he said he was fine. I've I had, mean, a band-aid, I've, I've right? Had, I've had clients with like the bloody nose and yeah. blood coming down their forehead and they bandage it up and okay yeah no I, I yeah i'm fine i'm fine and the officers are also like a little bit facetious on the stand there were no obvious signs of injury the blood blood wasn't an obvious sign of injury well that was a really a, a minor a minor bleed oh okay yeah <laughs> i had a i had a trial once too where the officers testified about uh very minor damage very minor damage to the to the vehicles this was like a, a minor fender bender and then i showed them pictures of like a crumpled in hood and i was like Are these the the vehicles of the collision scene you attended yeah i'm like so that's minor damage well you know i think this picture makes it look a lot worse than it was <laughs> Oh, you've got to be kidding me. The judge did not like that answer. Yeah. Yeah. The thousand words thing. <laughs> kind of run it through your mind. Um, okay. In any event, uh, other crazy uh, things that have been in the news lately. Um, there was an article published in Business in Vancouver this week about whether or not cyclists should have to go through a system of some type of regulation, whether it's that they should have to get a license or complete some type of a knowledge test about rules of the road before being allowed to cycle and and provide proof that they had done that. Who and, wrote the article? Who wrote the article? Uh, Glenn Korstrom okay. for Business in Vancouver. And uh, uh, that uh, article came out this week and has caused a lot of debate on Twitter. I got to say, like, the, the online cycling community is very mean troll worthy they they are very troll like you know i provided some good explanations for why a licensing scheme makes sense and why testing people makes sense in particular how often everybody experiences this you're driving and you see a cyclist and they violate the law like i see them on my commute down kingsway at rush hour and you know they approach a red light cars stop for the red light the cyclist just goes through or maybe they stop for a bit and then they see that there's a break in traffic and they go but they're not allowed to do that was that the reason though that they were asking for cyclists to be licensed no it was um this recent case that i talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast with eric mcgracken um where icbc was trying to blame a cyclist for a collision like put 100 percent of the blame and so it's, you know, do should cyclists have some responsibility? And the Motor Vehicle Act actually has a provision that says a cyclist must abide by all of the same rules of the road that apply to cars yeah, yeah. with a few specific exceptions. And the cycling lobby essentially takes the position that if cyclists have to follow any rules, that it will make cycling less safe 
because fewer people will cycle. And it's like, unless they can live in anarchy, it will be more unsafe for them because cars won't know that cyclists are there. I don't think it's any rules. I think it's the rules that are accepted by cyclists. But which the cyclists is, don't accept any rules except that cars should yield to them in all circumstances. Well, yeah, I, yeah, okay, that may be true. That may be that may be part of the cycle. Let's forget rules and let's talk about creed. Um, so, if you're a cyclist, you can run red lights because otherwise you would have to slow down and use more yeah, it's muscle more power. It's harder to stop. Well, no, it's it's actually and if you're a cyclist, you're, scientifically you're, harder to stop a car. You're, you're more ethically principled because you're taking less space and pushing less metal down the road. And it's less carbon emissions. Yeah. Well, So yeah. therefore you should have more privileges to not yeah, follow the rules but, of the road. Yeah, but now with the electric vehicles, it's, it's, it, it's more than that. It's the size. It's the fact right. that you're down on the road. And, you know, you're taking up you, space in a city that could be used for, for green parks that people could enjoy. Cycling parks. Yes. Um, for, for cyclists and pedestrians. Commuters, fuck you, go home. No, I mean, you know, the cycling lobby was opposed to any way of making the highway better between Vancouver and Chilliwack and all of the expansion and the new bridges and everything were opposed by them. And a lot of it was sort of the belief that cars would disappear eventually. Um, That's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen. They're just going to be replaced by electric cars. Um, and so there's this new problem that the cycling community has, if that's their raison d'etre, which I, I think they have to revisit. But back to the article, um, the thing that always surprises me is anytime I post anything that is not fulfilling their creed, I am attacked on Twitter. Yeah, it's full on attack. It's like, there are studies that show that if you have helmet, mandatory helmet laws, there will be fewer people cycling. Well, we have mandatory helmet laws in British Columbia. We have lots of people cycling every some, day. Some with and with, some without helmets. Some, many without helmets. Um, it doesn't appear to significantly impact the number of cyclists that I can see. I think that the climate... And the 16 months of rain a year probably impacts the number of people that cycle. How many months? 16. 16, 16, 16 months yeah. There's 12 months in a year, but in Vancouver, we have 16 months of rain. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I always wear a helmet whenever I'm riding by a school. Sure. Be a good example for the children. But then, then it's like, well, you know, imagine if you had to carry something with you everywhere you went. All day, every day. I'm like, what the fuck do you think is a woman's purse? Like, this is such a male argument. Well, you have to carry are, something. My, I have a cycling helmet, and it is incredibly light. Yeah, it's it doesn't it, weigh anything. Fucking pain anything. in the ass to carry. Sure, but it's, it's a incredibly pain in the ass, light. But they make collapsible helmets. Well, you can also buy a few. Leave one at the office, yeah. and yeah. you know, throw a few in the back of the truck. Yeah. Sure. Whatever. I some, mean, some in the back of the minivan. They're cheap. Twenty bucks. Oh, you have to. You might have to share and wear somebody else's sweaty helmet. Yeah, and when you go bowling, you have to wear somebody else's sweaty bowling shoes. And when you go ice skating, you have to rent sweaty ice skates. Yeah. People don't complain about that, and they do I all do. those activities and they enjoy them. I do. Well, then don't do those activities. Mm. Uh, uh, so long as I don't ride past the school. 
I used to avoid the schools. What does that have to do with bowling or skating? No, the point is I don't want to, I don't like to wear a bike helmet that somebody else has worn. I'm not going to wear somebody else's bike helmet. I won't do it. There, I, I, out my window, I've got the, the, the bike share, and there's helmets for every one of those bikes. I would never wear one of those helmets. Okay, I would never, gonna... ever wear one of those helmets. That's I'll ride the bike s- without a helmet. Yeah. I'll take the, the chance. The police are probably not going to give me any trouble. Well, I'm and this taking is a the risk. Other thing. There is zero, absolutely zero visible enforcement or consistent enforcement of any of the laws in British Columbia related to cyclists. And so if helmet laws, mandatory helmet laws, are truly a deterrent, then that would be the equivalent of saying you can absolutely not enforce a law, you can absolutely not be visible about the law or have any public communication about the law, and you can still get a deterrent effect from it, which is completely contrary to significant amounts of social science research, notwithstanding that there's some studies out there that I haven't been able to find that say that mandatory helmet laws deter more cycling. I want to get back to licensing, though, Mm -hmm. because I have been an advocate for licensing cyclists. Yeah. Not a, like, strongly outspoken advocate, but I've been an advocate as a result of the fact that I've defended, defended, I've, I've acted as plaintiff's counsel for people who have been hit by cyclists. Yeah. Um, and this happens with some regularity and the difficulty is identifying the person. Yep. So cyclists, when they have an accident, don't believe that they have to identify themselves. They don't believe that they necessarily, well, I mean, I'm speaking generally, lots of cyclists in cases that I've had, they feel that they can ride on, hit and run. Somebody with, else's fault. Hit and run with bicycles. They Never made a the deci- cyclist's fault. The cyclist decides it's never their fault. They ran over or hit a pedestrian who was crossing lawfully in the sidewalk, but the cyclist was running through a red light, and the cyclist believes they're entitled to run through a red light. Or they turned to go and ride their bike across the pedestrian crossing so that they could take advantage of the pedestrian crossings to deal with the light transitions. You see that a lot too. Or they ride on the sidewalk. Yeah. So riding in the crosswalk, illegal. Riding on the sidewalk, illegal. Um, and as a consequence, the um, you know there's an accident where somebody's injured. And the difficulty is identifying the cyclist. And my belief is that if you were required to hang a plate just mm-hmm. like I used to have a plate on the back. My my three-speed said Paul. It was Alberta blue and orange. Sure. If you're required to have a plate on the back of your bicycle, I think there would be a greater likelihood that you would stop uh, and deal with it pursuant to the Motor Vehicle Act. Yeah, and you can get your plate by taking you know, an online little course that proves that you understand your obligations to other road users as a cyclist, the rules that apply to you. When there's a bike lane, you must use it. When there's no bike lane, you must ride as far right as practicable, not down the middle of the road lane. That is against the law. I see it on Kingsway all the time, people occupying the middle of the lane, and you're like, you need to move over. Share the road. That's the law. Um, it's the responsibility issue that bothers me. And uh, ultimately, I think the insurance issue. So cyclists who um, have a vehicle, your insurance for your vehicle covers you. But if you don't have a vehicle, you're not necessarily insured. So ICBC doesn't necessarily cover you. At least that's historically. Your home insurance might cover you. Um, If you don't have a home. Exactly. So, Or you haven't purchased home insurance. 
or you have like a weird renter's policy that doesn't have those provisions in it. I think they were in it for most of them. I don't think they're in mine. Um, maybe not. I mean, I, don't I know. also don't have a bike, so it's not a big deal. My point though is that um, there should be insurance. So you get a plate and you get insurance. We have ICBC. It's already set up to function for that. Um, this is an expense that ICBC already pays out. Uh, and um, right now, cyclists are not paying any insurance at all. And I accept that, you know, we want to encourage people to ride their bikes. And we don't want to discourage people from riding their bikes. But at some point, this is going to happen. And it has to happen. I mean... In my view, we're all subsidizing the cyclists who hit people and dealing with a claim. And it has to happen at some point. We're going to at some point say, you know, ICBC is paying out um, a half million dollars every year in cyclist claims. Uh, shouldn't we be trying to recover that through cyclists ensuring that they're insured? And there's a lot of people who are not getting anything because the cyclist is not insured because they don't have home insurance or car insurance. Not, not the, the, the person who's injured by the but cyclist. But Paul, if they had to get insurance, there'd be fewer cyclists solely for the reason that they don't want to comply with a law. 20. Which, you know what? If you don't want to comply with a law about, you know, designed to protect the public, don't engage in a regulated activity. Cycling is already a regulated activity. Don't engage in it if you don't want to follow the rules. And cyclists will say that to drivers. You know, don't drive if you're not going to make space for us. Don't drive if you're not going to watch for cyclists. Same goes for cyclists. Compelling argument you make. You're welcome. Um, so that is it for our discussion. And now we bring in Chris. I have special guest trial lawyer Chris Carta from the Trial Lawyers Advocacy Group. Chris is a very well-known plaintiff personal injury lawyer coming to give us some of the perspectives of plaintiff's personal injury lawyers about the huge overhauls at ICBC and also help us understand how, for a lot of the listeners to this podcast, your rights might be affected already by some of the things that have been announced by the NDP government. So welcome, Chris. Well, thanks, Kyla. Happy to be here. Well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> um, all right. So why don't you just start off, give us an overview of what is happening because it's confusing. I can barely understand it. Well, no doubt. Uh, difficult to do it in a quick overview because the changes are so sweeping. Right. Uh, there's two main things were announced yesterday. Uh, the first being a, compl a complete switch over to a no-fault insurance system for motor vehicle crashes. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means is essentially for almost every crash out there, people will no longer be able to get lawyers and sue the other driver for their damages. Now, isn't it true, though, that there's no ban on lawyers? Like, you can have an advocate, and that advocate can be a lawyer? In theory, yes, except the only thing they'd be able to advocate for you to get would be working towards some of the benefits that you're getting. Right, and then you'd have to pay the lawyer for getting benefits that you're getting that you could theoretically get on your own. Correct, and then this is an overlay with the Civil Resolution Tribunal that they put into place last year that Which... becomes the only place that's allowed to determine whether or not ICBC is living up to its obligations under that contract to provide you the benefits they're supposed to give you. Now, does this apply to, like, every single personal injury claim, regardless of how catastrophic the injuries are? If it's a motor vehicle collision, yes. So if you're, like, you're a, you know, 
lawyer of your caliber and you're struck by a, a driver who's not committing a criminal offense, just in an accident, they hydroplane or something like that, they smash into you and you're brain injured and paraplegic and your entire career trajectory is completely changed, doesn't matter? No, I'd be in this system as well, but don't worry, we're being told ICBC will take care of everybody. So are you going to get, like, the future income loss that you would have got, you know, assuming you'd be earning X number of dollars a year for the next 30 years of your career? Is, is, is ICBC just going to take care of that? Well, we don't know all the details yet, but what we're hearing from uh, Mr. EB <laughs> was that is that they're going to be increasing the, they're going to be increasing the wage loss benefits and people who have more means are going to be able to buy extra insurance to cover that. I mean, personally, I'm going to be okay. Most of my lawyer friends are going to be okay because you know what we're going to do? We're going to be able to buy extra insurance out there to yeah. cover us in that effect. So we don't need to worry about so much about those of us making larger sums of money. Let's worry about the people that couldn't afford to buy extra insurance to cover them if they get denied. Right. And what this all comes down to, Kyla, is we're basically being given... It's like the WorkSafe board. When they brought in workers' compensation decades and decades ago, it mm -hmm. was supposed to protect the workers and remove the right for workers to sue their employers for getting injured on the job. Right. And they said, listen, the government's going to do this for you. We're going to set up this bureaucracy. We'll take care of you. You can trust us. Mm -hmm. It's precisely the same thing. And now if you get injured on the job, you're screwed. Essentially. I mean, everyone has horror stories with WorkSafe BC. Everybody knows someone whose life has been turned upside down by a workplace injury and they have been jerked around from one end of town to the other by the WorkSafe bureaucracy. I don't see how they got, this government thinks that the people of British Columbia deserve to have this with their car accidents as well. Not to mention, they're simply handing the keys over to the same people at the same corporation that haven't been paying the benefits they're supposed to pay. Right. Let's not forget, Kyla, we already have no-fault benefits in this province. They're called Part 7 benefits, and every driver's entitled to them. They're your medical benefits, they're wage loss benefits. They're not as robust as what they're proposing, but they're already not administering them. There's countless lawsuits against them. So is there an avenue here? I was thinking about this today because it seems to be that if you're um, injured and you're deemed to be not at fault, then your insurance rates won't go up. Is there an avenue to get around the ban on the lawsuit, so to speak, by disputing ICBC's claim of fault to try and keep your insurance rates low? You're talking the present system? No, the new system. Well, in the new system, uh, I don't know how that's going to work out, and I don't think anyone does yet. Uh, okay. They're still saying that the at-fault driver's rates are going to increase, um, but we don't know how that's going to play out. Right. Uh, again, this is part part of this whole thing seems a bit rushed. They just dumped <laughs> this whole thing on everybody. Do you and see have this? said this is what we're doing? Do you see this as as David Eby following through on that thread of you know if you're successful at challenging my expert rule, be careful what you wish for. Well, actually, as it turns out, in an interview yesterday, uh, Mr. Eby said that he's known since November 2018 that this is where he was going. Really. That's what he said, and he's been apparently hiding that from everybody all this time. Wow. Okay. Well, that's... So we'll, we'll see, see what happens with that as time goes on. That's very unfortunate to hear. <laughs> he came on this podcast after November 2018 and said this wasn't going to happen. 
I suppose we'll have to have him back. I suppose we will. <laughs> um, okay. But I-, I was really fascinated by some of the things that you and I were discussing before we started recording here about changes to the Evidence Act and how oh, yes. those are affecting people, like, literally today. Well, that's the second part of what was announced yesterday. And a bit of that has been lost in the hubbub and the majority of the news media because people don't really understand it. But what it is, is they're proposing changes to the Evidence Act that will cap the amount that can be recovered for an expert report at $3,000 per report. So like if you get a a psychiatrist to talk about the psychological damage you've suffered from being in a horrific collision, and the psychiatrist charges you more than $3,000 for their report, you are, are paying the Amount over three thousand out of your own pocket. Correct. So that would be the successful plaintiff would be paying that out of their pocket. Uh, in addition, the total amount of disbursements and disbursements are what a plaintiff ends up having to pay out of pocket mm-hmm. in order to advance their claim. So it covers everything from photocopies to court filing fees to uh, you know courier fees to all of those things or go hand in hand with that. Now, generally, those are funded by the plaintiff law firm. Yeah. For the plaintiff as they proceed. But the total amount, including expert reports, will be capped at $5,000, or sorry, 5% of the total received in the settlement or the court judgment. So first, you don't really know what you're going to get at the start of a claim. So it's almost impossible to gauge how much money you should be putting on the line. Right. But additionally, I mean, on a $100,000 claim that had gone to trial to get that, you're you're looking at somewhere close to nine to $10,000 of disbursements. Easy, because you're going to require a couple of expert reports, and there's costs to get there. And ju- that's just the way the system works. Right. And so now, those plaintiffs are going to be out that. And the big problem is that it's retroactive. There's retroactivity to this, because it applies to ongoing existing claims that have been made. Even though these changes haven't been put into force and effect in the Evidence Act. Correct. So the, the only the only exceptions that have been made are for expenses that were incurred before yesterday, February 6th, for matters that have already been set for trial with a trial that is set before October 1st of 2020. Which is insane because, as you and I well know, getting a trial date in BC Supreme Court is next to impossible. And if you want one before October 2020, ha ha ha, good luck. Well, precisely. So, for example, I mean, the vast majority of files in my office that we have set for trial are set into 2021, 2022. There's one file in my entire office that meets this exception. Every other file that I've got... My, my current plaintiffs are going to be out thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars on the complex cases. And how is that fair? Because they've been spending all of this money, or, or your firm has been advancing all of this money in good faith that it's going to be recovered at the end of the claim. Is it fair for the government, who also controls ICBC, to change the playing field and now say it's going to essentially cost you potentially more money to litigate this case than you're going to collect in the end? Well, of course I don't think it's fair. Uh, It's absolutely not fair. Um, It'd be one thing if this had been the system for some time or it only applied to uh, future cases, but to saddle... I mean, estimates range, but there's there's currently about 90,000 open ICBC files. Seriously? Amongst plaintiff lawyers. Wow. That's somewhere around... 
And the vast majority of those are going to be affected by this change, and they're going to be out thousands of dollars. Again, if not tens of thousands on those complex cases. So is there going to be a challenge to these provisions of the Evidence Act when they're enacted? I, I imagine there will be at some point. There's going to be some plaintiff out there that's going to suddenly realize they're out twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars, and they're going to say, uh, "No, thank you." For from a, a like purely legal perspective, the retrospectivity angle of it to me just seems completely unconstitutional. Like it, when you have a constitutional right and or a, 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 a right in a proceeding in a court. And government amends legislation to take away one of your substantive rights in that proceeding, it can't apply retrospectively. Like the Supreme Court of Canada has been clear about that on numerous occasions. Well, I certainly hope it's not going to apply. <laughs> and I'm, I'm disappointed that this government sought to do this and thinks that it's okay to do this to the people of British Columbia. It's I'm, discriminatory. Yeah. It's, it's a massive access to justice issue. Which further aggravates me with an NDP government that's supposed to be caring about the people, the more vulnerable people in society. Well, that's it's what more I don't difficult. Get. It's more difficult for people that don't have the funds now to seek justice and redress. And this... Again, me and my lawyer friends will be fine if 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 it costs one of my friends a few extra thousand dollars. To well, seek that justice. I mean, I mean they're not going to want know, to do it. Some of us are struggling criminal lawyers, Chris. <laughs> you and your plaintiff personal injury lawyers will be fine. Well, let's be, make it clear. I'm not just a plaintiff personal injury lawyer. I do a lot of family yes. law. I do a lot of other law as well. Yes, you, you are. My, my point is I'm talking about the people that make the average income in this province or the people that are struggling in their families. Right, the $35,000 a year income I, people. I, absolutely. And, you know, they don't have a, uh, they don't have a hope of accessing justice without in this current system. That does really shock me about this government. Seemingly consistently, the government is making decisions that end up costing the poorest people in the province the most money. And I didn't expect that from this government. I didn't expect it either. Um, okay, well, I'm going to ask you a hard question because I think it's only fair. Uh, David Eby has been saying over and over in the media that this is because... Effectively, I mean, he hasn't been saying this in as many words, but effectively that um, all you lawyers who do personal injury are just greedy ambulance chasers who are trying to make more money for themselves by taking cases that are crappy to court and bamboozling juries. <laughs> oh, you're right. He, <laughs> he didn't use it. as many words. <laughs> he hasn't used those many words, but uh, that's certainly the message he's portraying. Uh, I saw, actually, I saw a Facebook ad today that aggravated me. Oh, um, what was it? Uh, so the, the liberals sat by while lawyers got rich and did nothing. It's more of the same, more of the same right. theme. Uh, well, one, it's it's extremely misleading. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when they put out these statistics and talk about how much money went to plaintiff personal injury firms, I can't remember the exact number he threw around earlier this year, but at least two thirds of that went to, to the, the clients, the clients, <laughs> the plaintiffs, and of that other third. It pays for the offices, it pays for the, the staff that work in those offices. It's not an easy job. It's not like anyone just sits around and just collects money. Not like it's... those corporate lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what they do, but in any Sit event... around and collect money and dress like the Monopoly man. It, it funds all of that. And, and more importantly, and in, the, in my experience from the beginning of this, the vast majority of plaintiffs come in our doors because 
they've been stonewalled by ICBC already mm -hmm. on some level. And ICBC has made it an adversarial process for them. They've denied them some benefits are supposed to be getting, some treatment benefits are supposed to be getting, some wage loss are supposed to be getting, and they need help. So they come in to level that playing field by getting themselves a lawyer who knows the system and can help advocate to get them what they're entitled to. Yeah. And so it's it's hogwash to say that plaintiff lawyers are taking crappy files, as you say, and bamboozling juries. When juries aren't stupid people, okay? Juries aren't we can't ensorcel juries. We don't have magic powers. We don't get to just wave a <laughs> magic wand. I've been accused of bamboozling judges, so... Well, no. we've all been accused of certain things. It's called advocacy, and it's putting forward a case. That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. ICBC, as a corporate culture, advocates to pay people less. They always have. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest problem that I've seen is anyway, these people come in, it's been turned into an adversarial process by being denied or by being told that your case is only worth peanuts. We're not paying you for X, Y, or Z, your wage loss. And so if ICBC had a culture where they actually analyze these claims properly from the outset and actually assess claims on a fair basis, way less people are going to get lawyers in the first place. They come to us to level the playing field because they're not being treated fairly. So what's being done about this? I mean, obviously there are lawyers who are upset. There are organizations like the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia that's been advocating already for people's rights and for a fair system and for the ability for lawyers to do what lawyers do. Uh, what, what's, what are going to be the next steps when this comes into effect? Honestly, who knows at this point? Okay. We're going to have to, you know, wait and see how this plays out. Again, the a lot of the details are um, provided thus far by Mr. Eby have been uh, the big rock candy mountain approach. Everything's going to be great. Trust us. Don't worry. Look at all the wonderful benefits we're going to give you. Charlie. Yeah. Now Come everyone, to Candy Mountain. <laughs> now every adjuster at ICBC is going to have up to $7.5 million that they can say no to instead of $300,000 that they can say no to. I mean... So they've got more money. Okay, great. So is that $7.5 million per plaintiff? Well, okay. per person. So in a no-fault system, there wouldn't be a plaintiff. Right. It would just be per accident victim, So whether they're at fault or not. So if you don't purchase any additional insurance, you, Chris Carta, get in an accident. Yes. You can get up to $7.5 million. Yes, of, of, total, of total benefits. You don't have to, no one's writing you a check. No. There won't be any lump sum payments, although I think there's one for significant ongoing impairment that they're talking about. But that would be, over your lifetime, it would include things like 24-hour uh, care if needed. I mean, it's going to be the, the quadriplegics and the catastrophic Sure, but I just uh, think, injuries. you know, you have people like you who put in, and, you know, you and I went to law school together. I know exactly how much work you put in and how, you know, you and I both struggled to pay the bills to get through law school and now you're doing so well in your career and you've got decades ahead of you doing what you're going to do. If you're injured in a way that you can't do that anymore, the maximum you could possibly get would be seven and a half million dollars when you're going to earn more than that, well, presumably that, over the course of your career. I'm sorry, that seven and a half million dollar figure that's being bandied about, that's not for wage loss. And again, okay. not, that's going to be for 
care. For care. They're, they're focusing on this care model that they keep talking about. Right. Which, you know, if that's what they're actually going to do, that would be great. But again, we've, we've heard this before with WorkSafe and workers' compensation. That was supposed to be the model for workers' compensation. Okay? And, well, we all know how that turned out. And what are people going to do when they can't access care? Like, I mean, how many people in this province don't have, and you must deal with this all the time, don't have a family doctor? They just go to the walk-in clinic when they need something. And as I recall from being in an accident and being a person without a family doctor, when you're trying to go to a walk-in clinic after being involved in an accident, you get turned away more often than you get seen. Right. So I... what of those people? Honestly, I have no idea. Okay. It's going to be a lot more difficult for them to get a lawyer who knows the ins and outs of the system that's going to be able to help them navigate that and get better. Now, the Law Society of British Columbia has come out with a statement um, about these changes. I found it. and you Are know, you sure it's a statement, actually? It is a news release yes, that I, they put out today. Yes, I read it earlier. I'm... Yeah, it's, it's not much of a statement. Not much of a statement. Right. I, it's that's... more, this might impact people. We will watch it. That's, that's essentially all they have to yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, well, they're right. It, it's not might impact people. It impacts every British Columbian. Yeah. So. But also, I just, you know, from the perspective of a lawyer, I guess I have some frustration that there is no statement from the Law Society about the maligning of lawyers that's been going on, the blaming and finger pointing at lawyers that's been going on. I mean, we've essentially been called as a profession... And certainly within the plaintiff personal injury bar as a, a subgroup of the profession, to some extent unethical. The the lack of any response has been striking to me, but it is, I, I expect something will be done at some point. Okay. Uh, perhaps they're just thinking about it, thinking about it for a bit longer. <laughs> they have to pass it through knowing the law society, like 15 committees, of course, <laughs> get the support of 40, 14 benchers. Well, you know what they say about anything done by committee, so. Yes. <laughs> uh, they'll decide to do it by committee the next time there's yes. a committee. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> no, I, I expect the... Well, so they have to issue a statement of some sort at some point. I, I expect they will. Now... I'm not privy to those sorts of discussions, of course, because... You do other areas of law. You do family law. You do other stuff. I, I don't do. really understand it. It's all confusing to me because I'm just a, you know... <laughs> Little little criminal lawyer. Um, are you getting the sense that lawyers are scared? What are What is the large, by and large, response from the plaintiff bar? Uh, well, I think in the last day. It's only been one day, let's not forget. <laughs> um, no, tell me everything. <laughs> Everyone's feelings. <laughs> no, I think the... Everyone's a little in shock still. We're still yeah. trying to adjust to what happened. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of firms out there that only do personal injury law. Right. Uh, and so that's going to, there's some, some tough, you know, months ahead for them and some thoughts. I think generally, um, I just get the sense that there's a bit of, there's a little bit of despair, I suppose, in a sense that our profession as a whole is under attack. I mean, let's... Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, this is an issue that I find quite dear to my heart, not just because I'm a lawyer and a lot of my friends are lawyers, but because I think lawyers are actually really important in society. Yep. Uh, where the, the bulwark against uh, government overreach always have been. And 
I think I said on on the podcast last week, I referenced that line from Shakespeare where it says, you know, first thing you do is kill all the lawyers. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the context of that is how to establish a totalitarian regime. That's right. Well, and so the the first move of any government that wants to do stuff is to weaken their legal legal profession. Yeah. And it's not just the plaintiff bar that's been under assault. Over the last 10 years, lawyers as a whole, as a profession, have been under assault by government. Yep. By restrictions, by moving things off to tribunals that are created by uh, statute that aren't don't have the same powers as the court. I'm sure you've talked about this on your oh, of course, <laughs> on your ad podcast. nauseum, ad nauseum. <laughs> uh, you know, but this is just one more step in, the, in another direction. And so, the more we chisel, the more the government chisels down at having a viable and functioning legal profession, the easier it is for them to take away more rights from the citizens of this country and this province. Well, this is going to be something that we're going to obviously monitor on the Driving Law podcast. We're going to have to have you back once the actual legislation is tabled to give us your in-depth analysis. Of oh, course. happy to. Yes, okay. it's important to know that we haven't even seen the draft legislation yet. We've <laughs> yeah, seen I know. a, a working like the, paper. The crazy thing is that they won't even show us the draft legislation. Like, at least let us see. Let us see, see what, what we're you're talking doing. About. Oh, I'm sure it'll come out uh, two or three days before they... No, no, no. It'll, it. it'll, they'll table it first and then it'll be public. Yeah, probably. Um, all right. Well, how can people reach you if they want to desperately file their ICBC claims before they run out of time because the government is cracking down on them? Well, uh, they're not going to run out of time on their existing accidents, of course, because <laughs> those ones are still going to proceed out of the current system at least until this legislation takes effect sometime next year. Uh, but I'm easy to find on the uh, on the old interwebs. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Google me, Chris Carta, lawyer, Surrey, you'll find me. Okay, or they could find you at tlag.ca .ca and uh, 604-635-1300. Yeah, 1330, but 1330? Yes. Oh, shit, I thought I had it memorized. Okay, don't <laughs> listen to me. <laughs> As you know from listening to this podcast, don't listen to me. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, Chris, and for sharing your insights on the Driving Law Podcast. You're welcome. Well, thank you again to Chris Carta. And now, it's time for... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week? Yeah, that... that, Okay. Yeah, it's time for that. So... I thought of that. I just want credit once again. If you're new to the podcast, you should know that Paul Doroshenko came up with the concept of the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. But I came up with the idea to put the jingle in. That is true. And and I'm with you there. Yeah, the jingle's great. I love it. Um, So, our Ridiculous Driver of the Week this week, uh, in honor of my favorite stupid place in the world, Florida. This week, a Florida man, and you know it's good when it starts that way, stopped his vehicle because he was lost. And, I mean, I understand it. If you're driving, like, basically anywhere south of Miami, there's only one road you can take, so you gotta stop and ask for directions. Because there's only one road you can take. You're either going north or you're going south. Yeah, which way, officer, am I going? Single lane most of the way. (laughs) Anyway, the officer... Uh, politely, as a police officer is supposed to do, gave him directions, but noticed as he was communicating with him that he was acting unusually. 
and was intoxicated. This is a funny thing, really, it's because hilarious. we see fairly, with some regularity... People who are drunk, going out of their way to engage with the police. Going, yeah, to talk to the police, to like, you know, like they're going to fake their way through it, or they've had enough to drink that they've decided the police are just going to be cool with it. Um, literally any time in my life... Florida man. <laughs> literally any time in my life that I have consumed alcohol and then gotten behind the wheel of a vehicle... I've been like, okay, what route is most likely to bring me in the least contact with police officers? I know. I, you, you drive, so you will not have to face any police scrutiny. You, even if you've had one drink, you're very yeah. careful about it. Yeah. But um, it seems people who have had enough to drink in certain circumstances, particularly in Florida... <laughs> uh, wish to engage with the police. Hey, Yosifer, uh, can I get some directions? I can't I'm find lost, the exit. Man, like I'm <laughs> just kind of Fort Lauderdale's this way, and Key Largo's this way, but I'm trying to get to Key as Las Samola, something along that line. You can understand why. We have a friend from Florida, Michael Kessler. He's a, a DUI lawyer. Very nice guy. Uh, but he also jokes about the Florida man, and he defends cases all over the all over Florida. He defends the Florida man. He defends the Florida man, and you know, so more you, power to him. And I can't wait until he retires and he writes the book. Oh God, Florida man, a DUI lawyer's perspective. <laughs> yeah, Flo Florida man, uh, my personal stories by Michael Kessler. <laughs> it will uh, be great behind the headlines. Yeah. Um anyway that's our that's our podcast. Oh, well that went by quickly I guess because Chris filled in for me. Yeah, exactly. You mm. were light duties this week. You were, Thank you Chris you were, Carter. This week I guess you were not the co-hostist with the mostest, you were the co-hostist with the mediumist. Uh, I don't want to be dissed on the podcast. It's only cuz your contribution was only 50% this week. Yeah, but that's not the point. I mean, my 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 heart was in it. Yeah, I know your heart. At a hundred percent in. I know. And now so I'm still it's time for you to be a hundred percent out until next week. And if you need to get a hold of us, you can find us at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 